Hello, everybody. This is Paul Miller, and you're listening to the Tuna Town Talks podcast, located in Venice, Louisiana, the fishing capital of the world. Okay, today we're here with a very special guest of mine. His name is Dr. John Nyman. He is professor at LSU, and I had the joy of taking him fishing today with uh, a big shout out to a friend, uh, Logan Boudreau. He lined it all up for us and set it all up, so I can't thank him enough. But uh, yeah, we we went out fishing today and uh, caught a bunch of redfish. Why don't you tell us about that for a second? (laughs) Well, it was kind of important to me because I'm not much of a fisherman. In fact, my my wife and kids think there are no fish in the marsh because a few times I've taken them, we I don't think we've brought back a single fish. <laughs> and so it was really nice today, not only to catch a few fish, be the first one in the boat to catch a fish. That was really nice. That's awesome. So uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about your, about yourself, uh, Dr. Nyman, and uh, where you started, uh, who you work for now currently, and all that kind of stuff. All right, yeah, I grew up in New Orleans, went to the University of New Orleans, got a degree in biology, worked for Coca-Cola in their lab for a little bit. Then I went, for, went to work for Louisiana Department of Wildlife Fisheries worked down at Pasalute Wildlife Management Area, eight days on, six days off. That was from June of 1985 to January 1987. And I, I really loved that job, but it just paid so little that I decided I wanted to move up in the, the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. And so I figured I could wait five years and get the experience or go to graduate school and get a master's in wildlife. And that's what I did. And while working on the master's in wildlife, and I uh, did that work over at Marsh Island, Louisiana, uh, uh, on the other side of Morgan City, and I really realized that uh, there's a there's a need for data. Sometimes uh, there's some questions out there. There's a lot of questions out there, and some of them we can we can try to answer. So while doing my as I when I wrapped up the masters in uh, wildlife, I decided to get a PhD. That was in oceanography and. Uh, finished that in 93, and then I spent seven years at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. It was the University of Southwestern Louisiana there then, at that time. Uh, spent seven years there, uh, and then in 2001, my major professor from my wildlife days retired, and I really didn't think I'd get his job because universities don't like to hire their own. It's kind of like marrying your cousin, you know, the you know, royalty does it, and you know, way back up in the <laughs> in the woods they do it. But uh, you know, uh, universities frown upon that in general. But I applied and got the job that my major professor from my wildlife days had. So I'm a wetland wildlife professor at LSU. Been there since 2001 uh, in the School of Renewable Natural Resources. We train. You've been teaching there since 2001. Yeah, teaching 2001. Uh, 40% teaching, 6% research. Um, most of our people go to work for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and National Forest Service, environmental consulting. Uh, sometimes go on to graduate school themselves, get PhDs and whatnot. Right, right. Wow, it's very, uh, very interesting. That's that sounds like a lot of uh, a lot of schooling. <laughs> a lot of schooling, yeah, but a lot of work. You know, I get to go out. I go in the marshes with the restoration program every June, and looking at. Everyone's backyard they want restored as part of the <laughs> Coastal Wetland Planning Protection and Restoration Act Task Force. So I get to talk to a lot of landowners, uh, listen to a lot of landowners, uh, right. see marshes all across the state. Yeah. So um, I really wanted to get you to touch on some uh, topics, I guess, that would be uh, most interesting for us fishermen. And um, you know, one of the things with the river is it's constantly, 
and forever changing and you know a ton of erosion especially this year with the bad hurricanes that we got this year and everything like that so uh i wanted you to tell us you know like what what is what happens with the sediment whenever it comes down the river what are we doing to change it and uh you know, just tell us a little bit about the way that things currently are happening now. All right. So the river, the, the mouth of the river is real different from when I was here in the 1980s. Um, and I, I want to mention that. Uh, so when I left in 1987, I always intended to come back as soon as I could. I, I actually didn't start coming back until 2006. Uh, been bringing students down uh, most years since then, uh, undergraduates for spring break uh, field trip or graduate students doing research down here. And it, it was already very different, uh, even from two, you know 1980s to 2006, and then it's changed since then. And it, and this is this is one of the most dynamic parks of our coast. The mouth of the Mississippi River is like southeast Louisiana, um, in working extremely fast. Everything On is fast, right? Just it's everything's fast. The subsidence is faster here. Land loss is faster here, but land building is faster here because you got the river, and it's just everything is fast here. So. You know where you drove your boat last year. You may run aground this year. You just can't. You can't Tell get. Me about you can't that. get. <laughs> you can't get comfortable down here. Yeah. And but on the other, you know, the other thing going on though is that the the river, the mouth of the river is in a it's in a net loss. It's been losing wetlands. You know, there, there are fewer wetlands here than there were in the 1950s. Uh, that being said, though, there are places where there are more wetlands than there were 30 years ago. Um, and some of that is because of you know restoration work that uh, people have done down down here, mm. and so it's just a real dynamic place, and uh, it's the sediments are a tremendous resource. Uh, the river will put them in a lot of places where we would like it if we can direct it there or let it go there, and that's just not something you can do you know, over at Homa. You can't do that over by Lake Charles. This is a tremendous resource for building wetlands. Right. Right. And so whenever they're, you know, the, they're constantly trying to make the, especially Southwest Pass, that it has to be navigable for those ships and everything to come through. So, you know, when the ships and everything are, are coming up and how are they, how are they doing this? They're dredging, correct? They're, they do a lot of dredging. Yeah. So, yeah. So the most important thing the river does for us is provide deep draft navigation as far north as Baton Rouge. Uh, tremendous uh, savings in getting crops out of the United States across the world. Uh, a lot of refined petroleum goes out, uh, but also a lot of uh, imported stuff too. But although this is a net, we, we, I understand we export more out of these ports in Louisiana than we import, which is you know, pretty important for our country because we have a uh, import, uh, deficit on the, on the in, uh, import-export side. Right. So it's the most important thing we do, and to keep it going, dredging is one thing, but the other thing they've done is that uh, they're trying to make the river narrower with rocks. And so when I worked here in the 1980s, there were no rocks. On the riverbanks, really? No, it was, it was gorgeous. So the, the cypress trees, first of all, the cypress trees were it was a closed canopy all the way up to the water's edge. And you couldn't see through it from Venice, even down to, oh, he had to get down to, you had to get down to the, the tower there, at the old U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service tower there at uh, Main Pass before uh, cypress trees thinned out. And there was, but there were cypress trees all the way down the head of passes, down past Salute, down South Pass, and then the willow trees came in. You know, that's all gone now. But back then, there was a beautiful sand bank and the trees just came right out in the water and <laughs> it, was, oh, it was gorgeous. And 
to uh, one of the other things that's different is people have everyone has radar now, and so uh, we had a crew boat, a little small crew boat. And we would you know go to work on Wednesday, come home on Wednesday, and one one hitch we tried to go to work. We came down down came down here, waited all day. The fog never lifted. Drive back to New Orleans, <laughs> go to bed, wake up, drive down here, spend all day Thursday. Wait. <laughs> went back Friday, spent, and finally it was about, you know, we sat there and we're sitting, you know, waiting and it, it, it lifts and we go, okay, we're racing for it. So we fire up the crew boat, we were racing down. We got about halfway to head of passes and it socked back in again. Could not see 20 feet. So I had a compass, drove the boat west and very slowly until I ran aground. And then I turned north, and I just kept going upstream and staying to the left. No and GPS, no, track more, no, nothing no like track, that. Just, <laughs> just, try, just you know, run aground a little bit on the left and pull mm -hmm. out and keep going. And I found myself driving between cypress trees at one point. Wow. <laughs> That's, Holy moly. That's wild. And so, um, you know, they dredge a lot, but they also have uh, diversion spillways mm -hmm. and stuff like that. What is a spillway and, and who decides um, to open up that spillway um, and what's it actually doing? Okay. So the, the, then the, uh, you, the spillways or diversions, crevasses, there's a lot of different names and it's really all for kind of the same thing. As far, uh, it's unfortunate. We just use different names for it, but we're trying to mimic the natural process that built Southeast Louisiana. The river, the water's confined in the channel, you know, before people got started, it was just the natural levees. It was a high ground that would confine the river and it would, high ground would only get flooded every few years when a really big flood would come up and get another layer of sand to silt on it. So it'd stay high. But the river would be confined between the levees. And sooner or later though, it'd find a place to get out and it would bust out and it would flow. And as the water flows through there, it spreads out. And mm -hmm. as it spreads out, slows down, the sediments fall it's out. Right. And that's what builds a delta. And so that's the process they're mimicking. So with putting out these spillways, they're actually trying to make more land? Trying to make more land, yeah. And so if you look at a map of the mouth of the river from the 1870s, there is almost no land. It was the nickname for the place was the Birdfoot Delta. It was like a chicken footprint. Um, by the 1950s, the people who, the geologists who studied the river deltas said, well, it's not really a birdfoot delta now, it's a duckfoot because all the toes have been filled in by wetlands. And that had been, some of that was uh, just natural, uh, but one of them was uh, accidental by humans. Uh, it was 18, late 1800s, I can find the year for you, I'll let you know later. But uh, Cubitt's Gap was created by people. In fact, the story I heard, read, was that uh, Cubit was an oyster fisherman, had oyster leases on the east side. I don't mean side. to stop yeah. you, but one second. Like, uh, Cupid's Gap, can you explain, like, where that is now? That's yeah. that's right by Main Pass, right? Yeah, Main Pass is another name for Cubit's Gap okay. is, is what I grew up knowing. And, and, and so that's, uh, for everybody that's listening, that's about, I don't know, three or four miles north of the Head of Passes, if you're looking at the map. So. Yeah. It's right there off the east side of the Mississippi River. Yes, yeah, the main pass. It, it is the main pass going into Delta National Wildlife Refuge. Right, big right. Pass. So that was all open water uh, before the gap was opened. And I, uh, the writings say that Cubit's daughters dug a little ditch to drag oysters over the levee there so that they didn't have to take 
so the, the dad didn't have to take the boat all the way around. And the river started cutting through there and just ate through there. And then over the next few years, dug its own big channel. And then over the next several decades, built thousands and thousands of acres of wetland. And so Dennis Pass was an accidental one. Uh, no one wanted it. They actually tried many years. That was the like 1890s. They tried many years to close it up. And they finally gave up and it built, filled in you know, most of Garden Island Bay. In the 1950s, there's some reports from the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, and they accidentally realized that if they allowed the river to flow into these open water areas, it would fill in and create great duck habitat. It'd shallow up the water, you get uh, Delta duck potato, a great duck food plant. And so they'd started doing it in the 1950s, and we don't know how many dozens or hundreds of times they did that. When I went to work there in the 80s, one of the things they taught me is, is it's just one of the things they did. Anytime a oil company messed up and had a little oil spill, they would, uh, as part of the compensation, the Department of Wildlife Fisheries would tell them where to open up a gap in the levee where they thought it would build wetlands. So you don't want to open a gap in the levee if you got a whole bunch of wetlands there. It's not going to work. Right. You right. want to open a gap in the levee where it's, the levee is there's not much there but the natural levee anymore. And right. So where it can have enough. Uh, open water to go. Yeah, set. yeah, I want to get open water, right. three or four feet deep at least, you know, and then it'll flow in there and, and build wetlands. And then in 1981, I think the state started its first wetland restoration program, and there were three projects selected, and the f one of those was to build three of the, the biggest sediment diversions ever built, and that was they were constructed while I was here in 1986. And it's I thought it was a failure because I did not understand how the process worked. Because they came, they dug these things, they cut these big gaps, big gaps in the levee, pass, uh, Passalute. Um, so they South built Passalutra? No, off of Passalute, between Dennis Pass and Hedda Passes, that, that cut that's there, that's not natural. That was built as a part of a restoration project. Mm -hmm. When they built that, there was nothing but open water back there. It was like four feet deep. And um, I remember I drove my boat into it. And I was thinking, you know, just what a waste. You know, they, they finished this thing months ago. And I mean, nothing's happened. Right. I didn't realize it takes a couple of years, decades, really. But, you know, by ni uh, 1996, they had you know, 100 acres or so of wetlands there. Holy and moly. Today, That's got to be really cool to see, just to see it happen. Like it, that. It, it, but so it, it, it takes several decades to happen. But it's one of the cheapest ways we can do it. Right. Yeah. Right. But, you know, the thing is, you can't do that on. Anywhere except next to the Mississippi River, you can't. They won't work near home or you know, Lake Charles. Right, right. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Um, so that's pretty wild that just because you know somebody decided to bring some oysters through a certain path and you make a whole entire you made all the, yeah. thousands of acres of wetlands because of it. It's but also wild. think about what it destroyed the oyster habitat. That's one of the things that made it too fresh for oysters to be there. Oh. And so we see oysters on the dying side of our wetlands. And so all of... All the that, saltier side. The saltier side, yes. Yeah. Right. So when the river builds a wetland, it's fresh. And then the river starts flowing somewhere else and leaves that freshwater wetland there in the Gulf. Well, now there's doesn't have a freshwater inflow, so it gets salty. So all by Lafouche was created by the river as freshwater wetlands. Yeah. Grand Isle was created as a fresh area. The river left it, and now it's salty and... Right. Yeah. I've heard a lot of captains, I think on my last podcast, Brandon alluded to it, but basically said that 
what you want to fish a lot of times is an eroding yes is an eroding uh, peninsula or a point or something like that because I, I you know I, I guess that's what attracts all the fish you want the eroding part for the fish but at the same time you you need more land eventually <laughs> you gotta yeah. make more of it so well you're the fresh the fresh side when the river's building the fresh side there's fish there's too and there's a tremendous catfish fishery you know right back, right. back in freshwater. the 1980s there was still a big commercial freshwater catfish fishery it was kind of dying because the farm raised catfish made everyone want little ones right, it was funny right. when i was younger everyone wanted the big pieces of catfish mm -hmm. but everybody wants we got yeah stuff. we the marketing or we just got used to having those perfect little fillets that fit on a piece of french bread right right um, <laughs> Uh, but yes, there's stuff in the fresh water, but it's not the stuff you get in the salt water. Yeah. So whenever you're like, if you were to just open up a a gap in the in the in the levee, and you know you're making more wetlands, what us fishermen commonly need are these pools, or uh, little uh, divots in 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 the in the in the water or in the uh, in the land rather, that will hold salty pockets of water that will in turn you know bring us more fish has there, has there ever been an effort to try to make any kind of land I, like that or I like more of... more i guess wetlands that are more suitable for fish because that's yeah. in my opinion we got to make more fish somehow because yeah. <laughs> we need to stop fishing so well you know so one of the most valuable parts of the landscape to people is that edge where the, the where the grass meets the water that's right. where the birds are it's where the fish are it's where the fishermen are it's where the fish eating birds go and so, um, you know, we want to build wetlands that are good for fish and wildlife. And, and that's one of the downsides of, you know, we use uh, all, the, all the sediment we dredge, not all the sediment, much of the sediment we dredge out of the navigation channel, we use to build wetlands. But they don't have a lot of edge to them, generally. Now, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at Delta National Wildlife Refuge explicitly tried to build, when they pumped those sediments, they didn't build just a big circle. They, if you ever look at it, it's a bunch of little fingers. And so they're mm -hmm. trying to maximize the edge. The edge, yeah. And there's some other, there's another technique called terracing where, and you can do this anywhere in Louisiana, you don't need the river to do it, but just go into a big uh, area of open water. Uh, it used to be marsh. And uh, you just dig, use a backhoe on a you know, marsh buggy and dig from one side and pile up the dirt to the other, just make a whole bunch of edge. <laughs> and it's, uh, at first, there were some questions uh, about whether or not it just attracts fish and birds or does it actually increase the numbers. But I actually had a student do some work looking at ponds. And you put a terrace, we call them terraces, you put the terraces in the pond, you actually get more birds in the pond than you do in a pond without terraces. So it's not just attracting birds, it's actually creating uh, habitat. We think so. We yeah. think so. So it's not just, you know, we, we talked about that with reefs you know, while we were in the boat. Yeah. Whether or not artificial reefs just attract fish or does it make more fish and that might be a different answer but it's always yeah. a question when we do something like that i think it's a question but uh to me i feel like if you you know like we've made it extremely easy for people to live now like since i don't know the early 1800s it started getting earlier easier and easier for people to live and now we got more people so in my mind i feel like if you do that for a fish if you make an artificial reef or you make something like what you're talking about uh I think you'd make more fish. I mean, you make it easier on them. Make it. I mean, they're always obviously going to an edge to feed or doing something that you know is conducive to their feeding habits. So yeah, it, it's you know, fish and wildlife. You know, wildlife management, fish management, <clears throat> wildlife management is not about managing people so much. I mean, you got to do that. You got to try to get people to shoot this and not that. Uh, but a lot of the man, the wildlife management is really 
vegetation management or habitat management. You got to figure out, you know, do they need nest boxes, you know, or do they need more edge habitat to eat? Do they need more seeds during the migration period? Do they need more in invertebrates when they're laying eggs? And so it's trying to figure out what what is it that's limiting their population and trying to figure out how to provide it and so that you'll get more animals that we can right. shoot and eat. So it all starts from the bottom, right? <laughs> starts from the bottom. Starts yeah. from the bottom. And, and the other thing that you just mentioned, is there's more people. And so <clears throat> what was sustainable two generations ago is no longer sustainable. You know, the two generations ago, those people, you know, we have more people now. And so, right, right, right. Uh, what what you know, what a sustainable harvest per person two generations ago won't well, isn't sustainable each person now. We have to, we've doubled the people. We got to cut the, the 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 limit in half. Yeah, yeah. You think that? I don't know though. Cutting the limit in half. I don't know. We might save that for else. <laughs> we can go off on a long one with that. Well, that's if you got <laughs> twice as many fishermen as you used to have. And, right. And that's if before you were barely you were you were you are almost unsustainable. And so the, you know, the trick is to, you want to harvest as much as you can without harvesting too much. Right, right. Just, it's definitely true. There's also a big, um, you know, thing that, you know, different ways of harvesting fish. And I've kind of learned this through spear fishermen that I've learned from. But uh, whenever you take, you know, a, a, a big bull red out of the population, uh, that's that's considered your breeding stock. You know that's considered. Uh, you want to keep those fish out there, and the the smaller ones you want to keep those because they're more likely to get uh, killed through predation or something like that. Um, so we let the big ones go, and we keep the small ones. And uh, I, you know that's one of the debates I've had with like people with like swordfish, for instance. You know somebody's like, why are you killing all them small swordfish? You know they kill three when this other guy killed. You know a 200 pounder well who's doing the most damage you know it's it's hard to really say and i've even dove with people in the bahamas that refuse to kill anything that's big they only kill the smallest groupers they only kill you know the this they, they try they think that it's more sustainable and maybe for certain species there's ways that we can go about you know i, I think whatever whatever it comes down to is people should just keep what they need you know and nothing more than that. Don't go over the limit. Some of our limits are ab absurd, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, everybody has their thoughts on that. <laughs> well, you know, both of those models that you just described are probably accurate at different times and places, different species. You know, for instance, when they were bringing back white-tailed deer, you know, there was white-tailed deer were virtually eliminated from Louisiana in the early 1900s and the 1950s and 60s in order to help bring them back and still allow some recreational harvest. You did not shoot a female. It was right. a buck only harvest, and you got a lot of and and now late nineteen not, late nineteen hundreds even, we had a whole lot of deer on the landscape, you know, <laughs> and you know uh, believe it or not, you get a lot of white tailed deer in an area, you can reduce songbird populations. They, really? Yeah, they uh, uh, the deer will all, uh, indirectly affect them through you know clearing out the uh, clearing out a lot of vegetation. Right. But they will also eat. Bird eggs. Any bird eggs they can find, they will eat. Wow. Yeah, there's video. You can get online and find videos. A lot of birders know this problem. Um, but it worked. And so now, you, if a white tailed deer, we want people to shoot the females. And so, in a population that you think is over harvested, yeah, you want to leave your females behind and let them breed. But if you've got them coming out the ears, you know, like hogs in the marsh, 
we need to shoot as yeah. many of those things as we can. Right, right. Yeah, that's definitely a interesting topic there for sure. Uh, limits, there always can be. Um, so what is the biggest contribution to land loss in Louisiana? Just to switch the subject. I'd say that uh, it depends on which pl- which acre you're talking about. In some places, it's going to be natural land loss processes, natural land loss processes, but in other places, it's going to be human action. I mean, human action. Stuff. Yeah, I know a lot of people have talked about like the um, pipeline canals and stuff, and how you know that's kind of ruined a lot of the fishing because they take a, a canal that used to do a lot of the bending and all that, mm-hmm. and they make it straight up, and there's no way for the water to you know mm-hmm. settle and for the fish to go in that. Yeah, pipeline, oil and gas canals are, uh, uh, whether the, uh, the pipeline canals, uh, well, they, might not, they might not all be pipeline canals. But yes, the canals we've dug uh, allow the fresh water to drain off faster, the salt water to get in faster, uh, the dirt that they take out of the canals piled on their sides and blocks water flow. Those are certainly a problem. They uh, interfere if they're allowing the salt water in faster, that's stressing the vegetation and the the vegetation actually creates the elevation that offsets subsidence and sea level rise. And so you don't want to stress the vegetation more than you have to. Um, the, the, the dirt that they the spoil, that they pile on either side of the canal, that can uh, trap high tide water in there, a little storm surge water in there. And then that water gets in, it can't get out. And that flood stresses the vegetation. And so you stress the vegetation for you know five or ten years, and it it just falls a little bit farther and farther behind every year uh, relative to water levels because of subsidence mostly around Louis- southeast Louisiana, mm-hmm. and a little bit because of sea level rise, and and then the vegetation drowns. But you know the levees on the Mississippi River, you know they're all the way down. That's for navigation. You know we got to keep the the grain yeah. moving out. Right. Um, but you know all that sediment should be spread out across our coast and help offset the subsidence and sea level rise. And that's not happening. Um, the oil and gas that we sucked out of from underneath uh, the coastal marshes, uh, which mostly happened in the 1970s, coincides with our most rapid period of wetland loss. And uh, it might be coincidental, but it might be cause and effect that that uh, right. was accelerated wetland loss, just the ground deflating as you took out all the oil yeah. and gas and produced water. You know, there's a lot of whole, a lot of water that comes out with that. Just curious, I don't know if they do, but the, do the oil and gas companies contribute at all to uh, our wetland restoration as of now? Uh, I'm not sure how the, that works. Uh, certainly, they can do voluntary uh, work, and uh, some of them work with Ducks Unlimited. Um, uh, some of them donate money here and there. Uh, they also have to pay money and uh, for to do they pay for a permit? I'm not sure if they pay dollars to get a permit to dig a canal. I'm not sure how that works. Right. Uh, I'm not. Uh, wisest thing I can say is I don't know. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. Then that's fine. So we talked a little bit about on the boat um, about how old the Mississippi River was and uh, how it was formed. And I I found it incredibly interesting. Um, You know, before I did this podcast, I did a little research myself and I found that Mississippi River is only 10,000 years old. Was that, that, did I read that right? Well, the Southeast Louisiana is only 10,000 years old. Now there's been a river flowing through central part of the United States 
for several hundred thousand years. Okay. And so there's a lot of sediment been piled up on this coast. So the sediment itself is what built the co the Louisiana, essentially yeah. southeast Louisiana. Yeah. So to understand uh, south southeast Louisiana and and really to understand almost any delta in the planet, you got to go back to the last time we had glaciers covering you know most of the northern hemisphere. And that lasted from around 100,000 years ago until 20,000 years ago. With all that water and glaciers, the oceans were 300 feet lower. And so all those rivers, you know, they had 100,000 years uh, to erode down that level. And so these valleys, the valley that the Mississippi River dug during that time period was 300 feet deeper than sea level is today. There was rocks and trees and, you know, animals down there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 20,000 years ago, those glaciers started melting. They melted really fast. And I think by like 10,000 years ago, they were gone. The, the ocean still rose, though, for another couple thousand years just because they were uh, the water was still warming up, as I understand it. And so really about 5,000 years ago, sea level rise slowed to about a millimeter a year. Well, since that time, the the... You know, when that first happened, the salt water went all the way up the river valleys. And so you look at Chesapeake Bay today, there's salt water all the way up there. That's a river valley that's never been filled in by its rivers. It's filled in by the ocean. Hmm. The river valley from Mississippi River stretched basically from New Orleans on the east side all the way over to past Mor- just a little past Morgan City on the west side. And it was 300 feet deep, and then it filled in with ocean water. And that went up to Memphis. And slowly, over the past 10,000 years, the Mississippi River's filled that in. And so where we're sitting today, down here in Venice, this mud wasn't here probably until like 500 years ago. 500 years ago? This part of Louisiana is even the youngest part of all. This is the last part uh, to be built by the Mississippi River. Really? Yeah, before That's this, crazy. it was by Lafouche was building and if, all that land. <laughs> and, and I guess before doing this podcast, like talking to people down here and just feel, I don't know, you're, you don't ever look into anything. You just feel like this land's been here since the beginning of time, and now it's going away, and we're ruining this place. You know, <laughs> no, I mean, it look, is crazy to even think. But it, it, what you're saying honestly makes a ton of sense. I, I'm sure you're right. Like, <laughs> well, it, I, it, it makes a whole lot of sense to me. And you know, you, you start reading about this stuff, and this, these things just kind of add up. You know, so that's the, the the river was building. You know, by Lafouche and Homa and Thibodeau and all that. Uh, so let me get this. So um, we got more water coming down the river now than ever is that correct it look, it look yeah the uh it looks like the the discharge the discharge of the mississippi river cubic feet per volume coming down the river is just kind of it's not constant you know some years are higher than others but on average over the past 50 years we've seen an increase and that makes sense with uh climate change and warming there's a little more evaporation so a little more rainfall in a small river, you're not going to watershed. You're not going to see this because some watersheds are drying out, and other ones are getting wetter. When something as big as Mississippi River, you, you can you would expect it just to discharge to increase. And we're seeing just more and more discharge. Hmm. And you've noticed, you know, like I said, the, the flood of 2010 during the oil spill year, that spring flood lasted until fall. That was just crazy. Wow. That's crazy. Probably a good thing for the oil spill too. Kept a lot of the oil out. Here. We think so. We hope so. We're not sure if it, you know. There's, it's one of those things that logically it makes sense, but we're not sure if it helped or not. You know, the oysters have not. Oysters have taken a hit since then, and we're not sure how much of it is just over harvest of the the hard bottom, 
and how much of it is that fresh water that uh, right. keeps coming down every, I mean, it's not just 2010. We seems like we have a big year, two out of three now. Right, right. And since um, we didn't really talk about this, and I honestly didn't have it thought up, but um, can you tell us a little bit about what you think that the BP oil spill did to our wetlands? And- the wisest thing I can say about that really is I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know everything at all for sure. I do know that that oil got in and I saw it kill a lot of grass down here and, and get on a lot of uh, marshes throughout Barataria Bay. Um, and it accelerated uh, the uh, lateral erosion of the marshes, which is different. You know, the, you know I talked about what I'm lost earlier is the marshes not being able to keep up vertically mm-hmm. with the uh, subsidence and sea level rise. But we also have uh, erosion problems, and the oil certainly accelerated the erosion of a lot of those you know, thousands of miles, I would guess, of marshes. Chemically, you know, the oil uh, is toxic to a lot of things. But what's 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 imp- what's important to understand, though, is that almost everything is toxic. You know, <laughs> you know, a glass too much of, wine, of it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So a glass of wine a day is good for us. You know, uh, a half gallon a day is not. You know, right, right. half gallon. You know, a glass of wine is good for our heart. A half gallon is going to kill our liver. And so, with uh, the 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 chemicals in crude oil, some of them are very toxic at very low concentrations. And then, you know, the people always ask me about the dispersant. So I was doing dispersant research back in the 90s, even before you know, the BP spill. Back, that's that's what Logan worked on when he worked in my lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, uh, one of the, this is a complicated story. It's gonna take a minute to tell, but I think it's important to realize. So I wanted to pr- uh, get people to focus more on the problem of dispersed oil rather than the dispersant. Because with the research I'd done in the 90s, to me, that was a bigger problem. <clears throat> And I say that because, you know, we would we would do all the oil research I did in the nine, all the re- oil spill research I've ever done is in the lab. But you always take, you know, get a couple hundred jars of marsh mud and we would could have oil spills in some of them. We could have no oil spills in some of them. We could put fertilizer in and to see if it spread up the oils, that disappearance or not. Or we could use a dispersant or a cleaner. And we would do that and then we could, uh, you know, after six months, we could take the mud out. We'd actually take it out a day later, a week later, a month later, and then six months later. Then we could let some worms go in it and see if they live, or some uh, fish or little tiny, tiny shrimp crustaceans. And the the one of the surprising things was is that six months later, the oil, the mud that we had treated with dispersed oil was still much more toxic to the organisms than the mud we'd not treated with the dispersant, just oil. Hmm. And, but the chemical test, the state-of-the-art chemical fingerprint test couldn't tell the difference. And I wanted people to, to know that. I don't know what the answer is, but that's a problem. Now, one of the problems with that, me telling you that story also though, is that the big benefit of using a dispersant is to dilute that toxic stuff in a whole lot of water so that the concentration's lower. And so, but what the, happens to it? Doesn't it sink? It uh, it uh, spreads throughout the water column, and it will hopefully be eaten by microbes faster than if it stays in a slick hmm. on the surface. On the surface, yeah. Hmm. 
So you think that the dispersants, because I'll be honest with you, the common belief around fishermen is that the dispersants hurt the environment more than what the oil spill had done. But you're saying that the science would show otherwise? No, I'm, I'm saying uh, I don't know. You don't know. Exactly. I don't because I don't know. I would need to know how quickly the oil lost got to a concentration that it was not toxic from the dispersant. And, you know, so that's probably happening with, you know, so the oil slicks on the top of the water. By the time it got to 20 feet deep, it's probably not toxic to the things I looked at. But we looked at, we used uh, uh, killifish, uh, fundalus. What do you what, what do y'all call that fish they use for bait? Cockos. We used co baby cockos, seven-day-old cockos. So we could, we had thousands of them we could use at a time. Mm -hmm. Those things... Um, uh, actually, we didn't use those with dispersed oil. We use those to compare the toxicity of the dispersant to Dawn dishwashing detergent. Because <laughs> I wanted to show people that, hey, look, you think that's a problem. Look what happens with dispersed oil. That story got messed up because Dawn is more toxic to, than the dispersant to seven-day-old cockahoe minnows. <laughs> we, did, we went through... Can you, Over one second, can you explain <laughs> to me what, um, what exactly, what is dispersed oil versus a dis, I know what a yeah. dispersant is a chemical to yeah. try and dilute the oil. What is dispersed oil? Dispersed oil is it, just that it's oil all throughout the water column. Oh, and okay. so it, it is, it's, it's just out there. Yeah. Gotcha. It, 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 and so uh, I've got some video, I'll have to put some videos on my website so you can see the, what happens when you pour dispersant into oil you just instantly the 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 the, the whole you can't see through the water anymore because the oil is just totally mixed in mm, i see what you're yeah. saying and so you it's it's everything so when the oil is in a slick the concentrations of the really toxic things are slowly oozing out into the water column and trickling down yeah right. but when you disperse it poof it's like chugging that instead of drinking that bottle of glass a day it's like chugging it at and it doesn't quit. Yeah, I mean, you boom. It's it's. I mean, it's instantaneous almost. See, I would think that you would want it to trickle down, but I don't know. I don't, I'm not a yeah. scientist. Well, either, the, so. but the other part of it, they're saying, well, yeah, it it this you're going to increase the toxicity out there in that blue water that's you know several hundred feet deep. The the alternative is it gets up here on uh, our edges okay. where it's going to be oozing toxic stuff for years, and so I don't know what the right answer is. Yeah, it is pretty tough when you put yeah. it like that. That's very very. Uh -huh. That's interesting, though. That's uh, good stuff. I, I'm glad I mentioned the BP oil spill because, man, I tell you, that's probably one of the things I get asked about the most on the boat. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and for fishermen, you know, I've, I've even, even my travels, I'm traveling around the world, people hear about the BP oil spill. And, you know, I've always said that fishing's still good. People got rich off of it. Yeah. It wasn't a terrible thing. <laughs> yeah. it, it was terrible for a lot of people, a lot of fish. And uh, but you know, I, I went back to eat. As soon as they said it was clean enough to eat, I went back to eating gulp shrimp <laughs> and fish. Um, and you know, a lot of the wetland restoration today is funded by a lot of the fines and uh, other settlement BP. Yeah. And they paid out in dividends. They definitely did. So do all the, um, I guess we're getting back to the river, um, do all the locks and dams like further up the river? Cause there are plenty of locks and dams, right? 
Yes, lots. Do does that um, impact the amount of sediment that we're getting? Or um, oh yes, yeah, the, the amount of we're, we we assume that most of the sediment being trapped up there would be coming down the river otherwise and should be coming here. We don't have good data on how much sediment used to come down the river, say in the 1700s. That data doesn't really start to the 1800s. And by then, you know, farming was, a lot of land was just being plowed for the first time and sediment erosion was probably much higher than natural. And so that's the, the amount of declines since the 1800s might overestimate the effects of locks and dams but certainly locks and dams are holding back sediment that we need here to build our wetlands and so even if we were to take off all the levees on the river we don't have enough sediment to let the mississippi river uh continue building so that's another thing to think about you know wetland loss is natural as part of the the river building and abandoning places but over the last ten thousand years the mississippi river has net gained four million acres of wetlands and that ended in the, the late 1900s. We went to a net loss. And we've lost, in the, in the past 50 years, we've lost about 20%. And there's just not enough sediment coming down the Mississippi River to even build that back. So well, we got more water flow, but less sediment. Correct. That's my understanding. Hmm. And the sediment, That makes sense for the loss of land. Yeah. Okay. And the, That's starting to make more sense to me now. <laughs> and the sediment's in the, in the place we don't want it. It's in our navigation channel. Right. It's 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 right where we don't want it. Right, right, right. And there's there's that's what you're saying. So all of it's settling, and we're just gonna dredge it and move it over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um. And so you know, whenever all this um stuff's flowing down the river, you know, because the Mississippi River Basin's giant. You know, it reaches from where Montana. All the way to the Smoky Mountains, right? The back side of the Smoky there's, Mountains. It's actually a tiny corner of upstate New York that drains into a really? river that drains into the Ohio that drains into the Mississippi River. There's a tiny part of Canada that actually drains in. It's a it's one of, there, there are a lot of ways to measure how big a river is. Some by how much water it carries, how much sediment it carries, or how much land it um, it drains. And but no matter how you measure it, Mississippi River is one of the ten biggest on the planet. Right. It's giant. Man. Yeah. It's huge. So with all that, we get a lot of farms and rent runoff and everything. And from my understanding, I guess I'll just go ahead and ask the question. Can you explain this red zone to us? The dead zone. The dead zone. Right, so Not first of all, zone. I hate the word dead zone. It, it's a hypoxic zone. I got to be geeky about it. It's, a, it. it's full of life, but it's full of life that is poisoned by oxygen. They're all single-celled and there's nothing we can do to them. It's useless to us and it kills all the animals we want. And so I understand why people call it a dead zone, but it's actually full of life that lives without oxygen. So is this like a big red tide in a certain sense? No, not so much. The red tide is an algae bloom that's actually toxic. I, I, the first time I got around one, I gotta tell you, you know, I've heard about red tides and you know, they, they make, they're bad for you, they're toxic, you know, and they, you'd see people on TV coughing. I go, oh, just, yeah, suck it up. It just stinks, you know. <laughs> but the first time I was by a red tide in uh, the Texas coast, uh, down near the Rio Grande, there, there's something in the air. I mean, it 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 grabs you. It it's nasty. It's making you cough because it wants you out of there. It's some nasty stuff. So that's just actually a, a poison coming out. Now the 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 dead zone in the Gulf from the Mississippi River, um, is just because we fertilize it. The the Gulf of Mexico. 
uh, enough to create a huge algae bloom. It's rarely uh, toxic, but it, that's, li that's likely to happen more and more often the higher we get the fertilizer levels. And you know, the, the farmers don't want to have any runoff. I mean, they're spending money on fertilizer. And that costs them money, reduces their profit. They don't want to lose a single bit. But, you know, if, if you garden, most people garden, you, you read the directions that says, you know, first do a soil test and, you know, recreational people don't. Farmers actually do a soil test. But they're going to get the results back and they go, okay, add X. Well, they're going to add X plus one or two percent just in case. Because if they add less, that's a car payment. Or right, a tuition right. payment for their kid or something. They had a little bit more. It only cost them the cost of fertilizer. One farmer doing that wouldn't be a problem. But they're all doing it. So we get nitrogen coming down the Mississippi River, just right. creating a tremendous bloom of algae out there. And as soon as it gets a hold of an algae, then it'll just take off like rockets. It helps it grow. Huh? Yeah. So they just get a, you get a, a, a tremendous uh, algal production. They make they make thousands of more algae cells and they die they get eaten they either die and sink but also that would uh, how a lot of them sink those actually get eaten and then they get pooped out those little turds these little copepod turds sink to the bottom of the gulf of mexico some algae not algae so bacteria down there eat that they use up all the oxygen and then they don't care they just switch over to using something besides oxygen to live and they keep eating those dead algae cells and those turds and then the shrimp die and the fish die and they gotta leave and that's that's what it is. <laughs> so we if we can help the farmers figure out how to fertilize more efficiently, they'll save money. They won't lose profit, and our dead zone can get better. But that's not any research I know anything about. Wow, <laughs> we got to figure out how to feed all these people without using fertilizer. <laughs> yeah, if we're that's gonna use fertilizer, we, yeah, we do something, right? That, that, yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, <laughs> and more and more people coming every year. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of clients about that down in uh, Florida. They have a big problem with the algae blooms. Yeah, they're getting the, they're getting the harmful algae blooms, the toxic is that, ones. Is that different from the types of algae bloom that we get? Yeah, so far, uh, I mean, we've had a, we picked up, I just, summer before last, I was on North Shore Lake Pontchartrain, and I got that little cough, and I said, I hadn't heard about a toxic algae bloom on the North Shore Lake Pontchartrain but two days later, it's in the news. And so, yeah, we're getting them. But yeah, so the algae that are generally toxic like that, they're just not really good competitors unless there's a whole lot of nutrients in the water. And so they're kind of always around at background levels, but they just can't compete for the nitrogen when nitrogen levels are normal. Right, and so right. then you jack up the nitrogen levels and the bacteria that are normally there, they just grow more and make the problem with the dead zone. You keep jacking up the nitrogen levels even more, then the harmful algal blooms can uh, outcompete, or they don't have to compete. They're getting enough nitrogen, so they so bloom the, up. So the dead zone or the algae bloom that's off the coast of Louisiana here is that not a toxic? Generally, it's not toxic. Okay, but we, we you can get you can get pockets of it from time to time. They they, right. they do come and go, but we haven't seen the Florida problem yet. But you right. know that you know, and I feel like we got a lot more water flow than them. Maybe that helps us, but. You know, that might be, yeah, because they don't have the water flow to carry it off right, offshore. Right, get it out of there. Yeah. Like ours is constant. Our, the river never stops. So, right. But if I could see it, if you got a slack tide one month for a week or so and mm -hmm. not much moving water, I mean, 
Yeah, and it gives it room to grow, right? Right, and so you, you get the, all this fresh water coming down the spring and then it stops, the river flow stops and it can stack up against the coast. So I guess that's why we'd see it late yeah. summer. I'm not an uh, algae uh, expert though, by any means. Yeah, <laughs> there was also something I was listening to the other day and it kind of goes back to what you were saying as, as far as, uh, you know, you gotta kill all the bucks because you want yeah. the does to live. Um, they were talking about how they've done so much conservation for manatees mm -hmm. down there that they're eating all the vegetation and the fishermen i, I was mm -hmm. listening there's a fisherman on the podcast and he's saying that that it's that there's too many manatees and that's causing a really bad problem with other you know fish in the ecosystem or other animals i guess i mean that's pretty that that's that's one of the that's one of the consequences of successful wildlife management is when you get them, you know, so, think it, so you get, you get them. So if carrying capacity is 100 and once you have 100 of them, they don't stop making babies. Right. And so if they make 10 babies that year, well, 10 of them have to die. So you can put a limit on them. You know, 10 a year then. But the problem is manatees are so stinking cute. Who wants to go yeah. take them? It's, it's like, like the dolphins and turtles yeah. and all. They get so much funding and everything yeah. for all that kind of stuff too. Well, you know, that's happening here in Louisiana with black bear. You know, they, we had a black bear season in the 1980s, but hardly anyone ever killed the bear because we had so over-harvested them and hadn't uh, changed the limits. And so the limits were still set for what they were in the early 1900s. And so we put a stop to that. And I remember uh, saying, well, one of these days, we'll have enough bear to get a bear season again. And people, oh, you're not gonna see that in your lifetime. But we've got pretty good bear now. And I, I think within my lifetime, we're gonna see bear seasons in Louisiana again. Really? Yeah, yeah, we've, we've done a good job with it. And so, yeah. but you got that problem in Africa. You've got these preserves set up for elephants. Once they're full, the elephants, they don't stop making babies and they don't stay on the on the boundaries on the map. They're gonna go into local farms and villages. So what are you gonna what are you gonna do? You're gonna let you're gonna have to let some elephants be harvested, I'm afraid. And yeah. you know, we hate that because we we for years we said we gotta stop this over harvest. But in a few places Whenever you're actually managing a wild wildlife, I mean the yeah, but you got to do. <laughs> yeah, wolves at Yellowstone. Well, you know, we've gotten them back up. They're going to keep making baby wolf pups, and they're going to bleed off. And we, you know, we either got to accept what the wolves do, or we got to take the wolf. You know, <laughs> let the wolves be harvested. That's one of that, that's one of those things. I don't know what side. I actually, I'm I'm pretty <laughs> sure I don't want wolves anywhere. But that's a big debate going on in Colorado right now whether they want to bring back the right. wolves or not. Yeah. The thing is, is you bring them back, and they're not going to let you hunt them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you got to be able to hunt them if you're going to yeah. bring them back. But yeah, they're, they're, the same idea though has been applied to some fish areas. They talk about marine sanctuaries or preserves, and so you have a area, a square mile or something, where no harvest is allowed. And but once the fish leaves, you know, game on. And right, so right. Those, I don't know how well those are working, and you know, there's an enforcement uh, issue. And yeah, because we got several of those refuges around here. We're not allowed to, you know, fish oh, really? or hunt. Yeah, well, there's a couple. I don't yeah. know where all of them are at, but yeah. they say that you know you're not supposed to hunt or fish on them. But I wonder. I was. I've always been curious how well that works as well. It. I'm sure it works some places and not others. Yeah. You know, part of it is to do with compliance. Part of it is to do if if the problem isn't over harvesting, then restricting harvesting isn't going to, you know. I'm a, such I'm such a wildlife person. I have to go back to say wood ducks. You know, if the problem is a lack of trees old enough to have holes in them, and you can't have a time machine and make a bunch of hundred-year-old trees, then you, if you don't put up wood duck boxes, 
you're not gonna get any more wood ducks by restricting the wood duck harvest. The limiting factor is not the harvest, it's the production side. And so you gotta do something to increase the production if you wanna bring up the right. population. So reefs, maybe, uh, more marsh grass, maybe, uh, you know, it depends on the species, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about what the efforts are from the state right now um, or any other organizations that, that might be making efforts to you know, help our wetlands down here? Okay. So we talked earlier, I talked earlier about the, uh, the sediment diversions, the crevasses, the spillways that the Louisiana Department of Wildlife Fisheries had started in the 1950s and the state had continued in the 80s and then the, the Coastal Wetland Planning and Protection and Restoration Act Task Force, Quipra, did a couple of projects late 1990s, early 2000s to build more wetlands. But then the state kind of backed off down here. They they started thinking about the mouth of the river, you know, the Venice areas, you know, just not gonna be able to make it for another 50 or 100 years. And so they shouldn't invest in it anymore. That's the idea seeing, they're, they're backing off of that now and coming back around to thinking, well, you know, I think it's good for a couple more oil changes. You know, it, it's too early to just abandon that, that old car. You know, certainly, you know, even natural wetlands in the associated with the delta and the subsidence right here would go, and then the river would build them back again. But um, so they're they're not going to last forever. But it's people are thinking it's too soon to write off the mouth of the river entirely. And so they, I just saw that there was a big uh, a request for proposals, a big project. They're going to dredge out uh, South Pass and pass the loot as far as Southeast Pass, then down Southeast Pass a bit. And that'll restore river flow to a lot of these little cuts and bayous that used to be holding steady or even building land. And for the past 10 or 20 years, they've really only been losing land. And so that, that'll help uh, get us more, more marsh grass, thicker marsh grass, healthier marsh grass, that can then hold that, those saltwater pools a little longer against a little bit bigger storm than before. Uh, and so hopefully, you know, that's going to take a couple of years to design and a couple more years to dig. But I think within the next five or 10 years, you'll see South Pass cleaned out. And the sediment that they kick out of there used to build uh, more habitat for grass. Yeah. And probably some bird islands too. Yeah. That's what one of the uh, guys was saying. It's like, man, we'll see them just dumping that mud in certain places and it's like come on put it right there <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you know one of the things you know louisiana is gaining all the time with no effort at all shallow muddy habitat and so we're always getting getting more of that stuff so anytime they can take shallow muddy habitat and make it shallower sandy habitat or better even better yet grassy habitat they'll do that and so, so those bird islands will be a, a high sand thing, and, and that'll be some good beach habitat for some yeah. some types of fish. It seems like there's nothing around here stays for long. <laughs> no, this, this it, and you're right, nothing uh, stays for long. The uh, the river builds and abandons, and things sink away, and then it builds them back again. And yeah, yeah. it's like we were talking about on the boat. You know, it's like it would be cool if you could build like little lagoons and things like that, but it's. By the time you spend all the money doing that, and you start on the next one, the other one's going to be gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is not a place to build things that uh, uh, that can't take care of themselves. And so, you know, our roads we have to keep elevating them every few years. Yeah. Uh, our camps, our docks, we got to. So, I, so when I was working at Wildlife and Fisheries in the nineteen eighties, um, 
my first winter there, you know, you get these good, you know, the, you get a good low tide, you get a good north wind, and the water's like two feet. You, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> and I'm standing on this dock, and I'm looking at, I'm on the third floor of the dock. There are two docks under the one I'm standing on. I'm like, those old people are stupid. Why'd they build those docks down there underwater? I couldn't figure it out. And when the geologist explained to me that everything I could see from horizon to horizon when you're down there at the you know, head of passes is sinking, and I realized, oh, that dock was really above sea level when they built it. It is now below sea level except at the lowest tide on north wind. And so that subsidence rate our things we build don't keep up, but the river will drop sediment on the areas that sink and build them up some build more. Up, yeah. yeah, so the river can keep them building up as long as the passes are flowing. But yeah. you know, after a while, the passes clog up and the whole thing over you know a century subsides away and is underwater and then gets four feet deep and the river puts another one on top. Hmm. That's crazy. Um, a question I just thought of, um, would you know much about the midnight lump? No, I heard about it on one of your podcasts, uh, but the, the mud lumps in general. Okay, that, okay, you might want to touch on that. Maybe. All right, so the midnight lump, I'm, t I'm guessing, is an underwater lump that doesn't come out of the water. Yeah, so the midnight lump is an underwater lump, it, it, you know, in all sides of it. I think it's like, I don't know, like 400 feet, and then it comes up to a pinnacle about 200, and it's it's a reef. You know, it's, wow. like, it's like coral reef that comes up, um, but it's it's only man i want to say it's like less than i don't want to say it's not, it's not that far from southwest pass mm -hmm. maybe 15 20 miles from southwest how, pass how long has that one been there you think that's why why mm -hmm. i wanted you to get, touch on it because i've actually heard that the the river is what formed it it's literally like right outside the i mean it's a big mound <laughs> that comes up and i've heard from certain people that the river formed it, I I don't don't take me on that for nothing because I don't really know, but it does make sense from where it's at and the lump yeah. and everything like that. Almost everything around here has been formed by the river because the river uh, it either destroys it or builds it around here. Right. And so I, I I imagine that's part somehow built by the river, but it, I don't think it's uh, what I'm talking about is uh, the mud lump because that one sounds so much more permanent. The fact that it's got oh, it's still hunt. there. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a got, hard, it's a tuna fishing spot. I think yeah. what you're talking about the mud lumps is yeah. off of South Pass. Yeah, well, they're, they used to be off Southwest Pass, South Pass, and Passalute, and that's so the weight of the the new sediments from the river are squishing the weights of the stuff that it put earlier. And so you think about when you step in mud and you're barefoot, the mud squeezes up between your toes, that's a mud lump. And then the waves wash them away. They're very, they only last for a few years, the, the true mud lumps. Right, right. And uh, sometimes they can have little mud volcanoes in them. It's kind of cool. <laughs> um, Everybody tells me about how much fish they used to catch on them, but I've never seen one personally. We talked a little bit about, um, the the midnight lump and i thought it might have been related to the river um we just did a little quick google search and we found that it's actually a salt dome and i was going to let uh, dr Naaman uh, go ahead and tell us what a salt dome actually is okay so it's kind of like the mud lump where the weight of the sediment on top is pushing down on the stuff underneath and in a mud lump, it's the mud coming up. And this would be, you know, mud just several thousand years old, less than 20,000 years old. Got to be less than that. And coming up and actually getting washed away. Salt domes are the same process, but the salt comes from much deeper. There's a layer of salt down underneath all this, uh, all of Mississippi River sediments. 
the Luana Salt Formation, I think they call it. And uh, But salt is, uh, believe it or not, kind of liquidy. It kind of flows, particularly under pressure. And so where this, just by random chance, you get a place where the kind of salt pushed up a little bit higher than the areas around it. Well, that made there be less weight on top of that part of the salt. So it could push up even higher. And then the salt next to it starts flowing up. And so over tens of thousands of years, the salt actually flows all the way up into the surface. So you go it over on the other side of Morgan City, you got the five, you got Avery Island, Jefferson Island, uh, Weeks Island, I think. Uh, they just had a, a salt cave in uh, last week at one of them. Uh, two workers were killed. Um, but a lot, there are other, those are the ones we know of because they poke up so high that you can get trees growing on them. But there are hundreds, if not thousands of salt domes. Some of them never poked up out of the bottom, but geologists know where they are. They like to drill around them for oil. Some of them poke up enough to raise the bottom of the ocean up. And that sounds what you got there with the midnight, the midnight lumps. Midnight lumps, yeah. Yeah, so you got coral on it. It's permanent enough that it'll stay there. Wow. That's pretty interesting um, that it's almost the same as a mud lump. <laughs> but, it's, yeah, but it's deeper and it's capped by hard rock. So the, right, water, right. the water can't get to that salt. It's wow. got a good hard rock cap around <laughs> it. So, uh, Dr. Naiman, um, one of the things... You know, I always ask people at the end of the podcast is what do you think we can do in terms of conservation um, as fishermen and, and people that want to, you know, obviously you, you like to fish, too. I saw your face today. so. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think we can do as fishermen, as a fishing community down here in Venice? You know, what would be our best effort to keep what we got um, as, as, as plentiful as, as, as we can? There's a couple of things. One is to keep advertising what you got here, because if you're the only person on the planet that cares about it, the rest of the people in the country aren't going to care. And so you gotta, you gotta, you gotta advertise what you got here, and you gotta uh, bring people out and show it to them and help them enjoy it. That's part of it. The other part is trying to learn as much about the way it works as possible. You know, and and that there's. One thing I've learned from going across the state is that you know every marsh I go into, I can learn something from some of these landowners because they they see things that I don't see. On the other hand, often I think I could teach them something if they because uh, they get so focused in on you know their piece of horizon that they see. Yeah. And um, and then trying to stay involved in the restoration programs. You know, the, the Quipper program has every year a new cycle. Anyone can nominate a restoration project. Uh, but that all happens during the week, nine to five. And it's hard for the general public to stay involved. It takes effort. And usually the people who are involved are hired by landowners who can afford to hire someone to go in and, and argue for them. Or the parish steps in and a lot of times will try to work uh, with them. And so try to stay involved as best you can. It's not going to be easy. They're not going to, they don't know who to ask. Right, yeah, right. They uh, they don't know who to come to uh, talk to and try to stay involved, try to get involved and stay involved in the restoration program and and uh, say what you think and listen to what they think. And I, I really like what, what you said um, right there was that, you know, you could, you know, he could teach you something about his land, but at the same time, you could tell him something. And I think that that's. Uh, there's a big disconnect um, sometimes between fishermen and uh, uh, either the scientists or the people that are making the laws, whatever it is. 
fishermen hate that guy. <laughs> and I don't, I really hate that because I, I really think that, uh, you know, we need, we need everybody. There's science involved. There's people going out there every single day that are seeing the changes on a daily basis. That's valuable. People that have been, you know, studying this stuff for years and have PhDs, that's valuable. But, you know, us working together will get it, get us somewhere. You know what I mean? Us wanting to fight each other, us wanting to, you know, you know, label somebody as a conservationist or a lefty. Even that, that that's all nonsense. What, what we all love is fishing and what we have down here. We need to we need to keep that going as best we can. So uh, I really, uh, I really, really appreciate you coming on uh, and uh, coming to the podcast and talk to me. I learned a ton from fishing with you today, and I can't thank you enough um, for giving me the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. Let me thank you for letting me prove to my family that there are fish out in the marsh. I've been taking them fishing uh, rarely since uh, for over 10 years now, and I've never put that many fish in the boat when I've gone out. So thank you very much. Awesome. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap wrap it up. And um, everybody, have a good day. Be safe while you're on the water. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please give us a follow on Facebook or Instagram at Tunatown Talks. Also, if you'd like to book a charter with me, you can do so by visiting our website at mgfishing.com. That's Mexican Gulf website, where you'll find my online booking calendar with all my open dates. And remember, guys, always be safe while out on the water. <laughs>